and welcome to the Iran podcast. I'm Negar Mortazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we revisit the 1979 revolution in Iran and the atmosphere that led to that event. And then we take a look at Iran today and ask whether another revolution is possible in Iran. My guest today is Mohsen Milani, Executive Director of the Center for Strategic and Diplomatic Studies and Professor of Politics at the University of South Florida. Mohsen, welcome to the Iran Podcast. Thank you very much for your invitation, Nagar. It's a pleasure to be with you for this program. It's great to have you. So let's start by talking about the atmosphere before the 1979 revolution in Iran. And if you can discuss some of the reasons for the revolution or basically what led to that eruption in 1979. So uh, there are two uh, parts to your question. First, the the sort of mindset, the uh, prevailing atmosphere in Iran prior to 1979. If you go back to uh, the last decade, in fact, to 1960s and 1970s, and perhaps even prior to those two decades, you will see that we had a very romantic view of revolution, which was mostly framed by the Iranian leftists. That uh, romantic view of the revolution was by itself influenced by the October Revolution of uh, 1917, and it gradually influenced Iranian intellectual landscape. When we had the first uh, really uh, massive uh, urban protest movement in the constitutional movement, they used to refer to it as Nehzate Mashrute. But then a few years later, it became the uh, constitutional revolution. It really was not a revolution. It was a reform movement, a radical reform movement. Why? Because we Iranians had a view of revolution as something that is necessary, something that is positive. And then if you go back to 1960s, even the Shah, former Shah of Iran, Mohammad Reza Shah, when he initiated radical reforms in Iran in terms of land reform and other important reforms, he called it the white revolution, the bloodless revolution. Why? Again, because he wanted to uh, sort of neutralize this romantic view of revolution by the leftists that if you are talking about revolution, here I am actually launching it. And then, of course, we had the revolution in 1979, which was the only uh, authentic revolution we've ever had in Iran. And if you look at the entire century in Iran, you see a society that was extremely restless, a society that, that was impatient for progress, and in the minds of many on the left, and perhaps a few on the right, the revolution was often seen as a shortcut to progress, a shortcut to modernity. And I submit to you that uh, we were all wrong. There is no shortcut to modernity. There is no shortcut to progress. It's a slow and painful process. Now, regarding the second part of your question, why we had the revolution in Iran, of course, there are there were many reasons And because we don't have enough time, I just want to focus on two reasons. In my judgment, the most important reason why we had a revolution in Iran in 1979 was because under Mohammad Zashar Pahlavi, Iran experienced impressive, and I want to underline this, impressive 
economic and social development. Perhaps on parallel in the developing world, I was a product of those decades because of the increasing oil revenue and because of the Shah's leadership. We witnessed impressive economic development in Iran. Uh, if you just look at the number of universities and colleges created in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, you will be impressed. We saw the enlargement of various classes in Iran. We saw massive urbanization. And uh, culturally, too, there was quite a bit of improvement. Iranian society had become a very dynamic society. Mm-hmm. Revolutions don't take place in static and stagnant societies. Revolution happens in dynamic society. That impressive economic development took place when there was no political development. If I have to simplify it, I would say that the Shah wanted to create a modern economic and political system, but wanted to rule in a very traditional way. There was this contradiction between socio-political development on one hand and political development on the other hand. And this is why a lot of people from different classes decided to uh, unify under one banner and to get rid of the Pahlavi dynasty. Um, The Shah did create more or less a modern society, but unfortunately, he wanted to rule it as if we are still in the Qajar dynasty period. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second reason why we had the revolution, that uh, socioeconomic development that was not corresponding to political development was a uh, necessary but not sufficient reason for the revolution. Frankly, if you look at the last year of the Pahlavi rule, you'll see that in many ways, the revolutionaries didn't win the revolution. The Shah lost the revolution, and there is a difference between the two. What do I mean by this? What I mean by this is that the Shah was quite indecisive during the last year of uh, his rule. He used violence when he had to compromise, and he compromised when he had to be violent. Not violent, he had to be decisive. The best example of it is when he appeared on uh, national television and he said that he had heard the voice of people's revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, in many ways, if uh, his performance remind me of a concept that I talked about in my book. Uh, I refer to the Shah as an autocratic democrat. In other words, one day he would act as an autocrat, and the next day he would act as a democrat. To, in other words, to, to, he tried to open up the political process. When he was decisive and repressive, he alienated the revolutionaries. When he was compromising, and he gave concession to the opposition, he alienated his own supporters. And at the end, his illness, as we know, he was diagnosed with some sort of cancer. His own illness, coupled with his uh, innate indecisiveness, led to the breakdown of the entire system. And because the political system was based on a one-man rule, ruled by the Shah, when the top of that pyramid disappeared or was overthrown, the entire system collapsed and collapsed quickly. Mm. And 
And uh, I want to ask you about America's position towards the revolution and the revolutionaries back then, the Carter administration. There have been many discussions on how the United States basically didn't really see or believe that this revolution, this eruption was coming and was really happening. What was America's position, first of all, towards the revolution? And why do you think that was? Why do you think they sort of missed this this big event coming? Well, you know, revolutions by definition are unpredictable. Uh, so uh, we have to understand that and not try to be too critical of the U.S. But there were a couple of reasons why I think they missed the revolution. Number one, uh, throughout the uh, entire uh, post-World War II until 1979, uh, the U.S. was essentially interested in Iran as a uh, part of its uh, global strategy to contain the Soviet Union. And I think a deal was struck between the Shah and the U.S., perhaps uh, implicit deal. And the deal was that we leave you alone in running your own government, running your own country, if you stay with us, if you stay under the uh, security umbrella of the U.S. against the Soviet Union. So uh, even if there were 50,000 Americans living in Iran, even if they had the largest embassy, American embassy in the Middle East in Tehran, uh, frankly, uh, we didn't know a great deal about Iranian society. We knew a great deal about the Iranian elite, but didn't know quite a bit about Iran. Uh, the late James Bill, one of the best and most uh, perceptive analysts of Iran uh, in his book uh, talks about, for example, how in the American embassy, there were fewer people who spoke the Persian language in terms of percentage as well as actual number than those who spoke Persian in the Russian embassy, in the Soviet embassy, and the British mm -hmm. embassy. Interesting. Uh, and, and therefore, we didn't know a great deal about Iran. And secondly, there were some analysts in the embassy uh, who knew exactly what was going on and who offered perceptive analysis. I say that because I have studied the documents that were captured by Iranian students. And then you see a number of extremely, extremely uh, capable American analysts who were giving warnings to America about what is taking place in Iran. But because of the strategic importance of the US, of Iran, for the U.S., those signals were completely ignored. The real problem, though, is once the revolutionary movement started, uh, the Carter administration was as indecisive and confused as the Shah was. We had one faction in the American government under the leadership of Secretary of State Cyrus Vance, who was talking about pushing the Shah to open up the political process, to liberalize. Uh, they, these guys were human rights advocates. On the other hand, we had Zbigniew Brzezinski, the uh, uh, national security advisor to the president, who was talking about the Shah having really an iron fist and suppressing uh, his opponents. And then you had the American ambassador in Tehran, Mr. Solomon, who really didn't know much about Iran, who was ru running his own show. As a result of these contradictory messages that the U.S. were sending to Iran, the Shah became confused. The fundamental problem with the Carter administration, the fundamental problem was that while President Carter was sincere about pushing human rights in Iran, he also did not want to lose the enormous economic uh, interest 
that the U.S. had in Iran, economic as well as strategic interest. Do not forget, by 1975, Iran was the number one buyer of American weapons, the role that the Saudi, that the Saudi kingdom is playing right now. So Jimmy Carter was torn between these two uh, contradictory uh, desires, the desires to uh, push for human rights and the desire to maintain American enormous interests in uh, Iran. And therefore, he too sent contradictory signals to the Shah of Iran. One day, he would support the Shah's uh, suppression of the opposition, and the next day, he would send signals to the Shah that don't, do, don't be so uh, aggressive toward the opposition. And once by the middle of 1978, about six months before the collapse of the Pahlavi regime, this is when uh, Mr. Sullivan, the American ambassador, begins to contact the Iranian opposition, essentially the pro-Khomeini faction of the Iranian opposition, as well as people associated with Mr. Bazargan. And they did play a role in the smooth transition of power from uh, relatively speaking, smooth transition of power from the uh, from the old regime, the imperial regime, to the Iranian revolutionaries. If I have to summarize everything in terms of what happened during the revolution, I would say the U.S. did not know anything about the opposition to the Shah. They knew very little about what was going on. They knew quite a bit about the National Front they knew little bit about Mr. Bazargan's liberation movement in Iran, but they were, should I say, quite ignorant about the clerical opposition to the Islamic Republic. And because of the contradictory policies that Carter had pursued in the last year of the Islamic Revolution, when the Shah was overthrown, the United States found itself friendless. Why? Because the pro-Shah elements, those who supported the Shah, were angry at the U.S. for betraying the Shah when he needed help. And the revolutionaries were angry at the U.S. for supporting the Shah when they needed the support from the U.S. That is the price the U.S. paid for President Carter's indecisiveness during the last year of the Pahlavi regime. Mm -hmm. And um, you mentioned some of the diplomats or analysts at the U.S. Embassy, some of whom were actually later... Um, taken hostage in the takeover of the embassy who had analysis of the situation that led to the revolution and then also the post-revolutionary um, atmosphere across Iran, the anti-American sentiment that was building up. But now I want to talk about that episode, the hostage crisis, which didn't happen, in fact, until months after the revolution. So about um, from February all the way to November of 1979, that uh, the Iranian students demanded a return of the Shah. Shah was admitted into the United States, and eventually it led to the takeover of the embassy and um, the hostage crisis that went for over a year, 440 uh, four days where American diplomats and um, staff at the embassy were taken hostage. And it really um, was a significant event in not only the post-revolution uh, 
direction of Iran, but also that shifted U.S.-Iran relations for the next decades to come. It was the beginning of the U.S. imposing sanctions on Iran. It completely um, transformed Iran's image in American media, American psyche. To this day, uh, almost every American has heard of the hostage crisis, knows about that event, and it's it's been a very, very significant um turn or episode in history. Talk about that episode, what you think led to that um, hostage crisis and how it shifted um, U.S.-Iran relations until today. Let me see if I can address your question by going back to 1979 and discuss the mindset uh, or the condition or the prevalent conditions in Iran when the hostage crisis took place. So the Shah is overthrown and the army declares its neutrality. There is chaos and different groups uh, in the anti, in the broad anti-Shah coalition are competing for power. They had the nationalists, uh, Islamic nationalists, uh, pro-Khomeini fundamentalists or radicals. And of course you had the leftists of, of various uh, types, the pro-Moscow, uh, the Maoists, uh, the Trotskyites, you name it. They had a hodgepodge of different groups, all competing for power. And the government itself was controlled by Mehdi Abazagan. The problem was that Mehdi Abazagan, who ran the provisional revolutionary government from February to November, when the hostage crisis took place, was not as powerful as the supporters of Ayatollah Khomeini and the institutions that Ayatollah Khomeini was gradually building in Iran. For example, for every agency within the government, Ayatollah Khomeini was creating a parallel institution. For example, you had the regular court, he created the revolutionary courts. Mm-hmm. You had the regular army, he created the Vastara and IRGC. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the list goes on and on. So there was this competition between the real government and what I call a state within a state that the supporters of Ayatollah Khomeini were creating. And then around the same time, they had started the discussion about the nature of the future government. Iran was engaged in writing its own constitution. And at the same time, while the government of Bazargan was looking for ways to find a rapprochement with the US, the more radical elements, both of its Islamic variation as well as its secular leftist variations, opposed any kind of rapprochement with the U.S. Remember, the dominant thinking in Iran at that time was to be anti-imperialist, to be anti-U.S., to be anti-American intervention in Iran. That was something that was shared by the nationalists, as well as the leftists, as well as the Islamists. So while the government was moving, in my judgment, rightly so, I think Bazargan was right. They had to have a rapprochement with the U.S. at that time. But as the government was trying to find a way to normalize relations with the U.S. A bunch of radical students, about 600 of them, stormed the American embassy in Tehran. Uh, By the way, that embassy was uh, just a few hundred yards away from where I was born in Tehran. So Mm -hmm. I'm quite familiar with that beautiful uh, compound and building. They attacked the American embassy and uh, they take over the embassy. Now, Ayatollah Khomeini, Based on the research I've done, and I know uh, there is a new narrative that 
basically says Khomeini knew about this from the very beginning. Now, I interviewed a lot of uh, people who uh, were engaged in hostage taking many years ago, about 20 years ago. Based on that research I'd done, everybody that I talked to told me Khomeini didn't know anything about the initial attack. They went over to embassy and they had a very specific goal to prevent the U.S. from staging, in their mind, a coup d'etat, because at that time the Shah was still alive and the revolutionaries Mm -hmm. were demanding that he be extradited to Iran. So their goal was simply to stop a rapprochement between the U.S. and Iran. Khomeini, in the second day of the hostage crisis, finally decided to support the the hostage crisis because the first day he sent his son, Ahmed Khomeini, to find out about who these guys are. He didn't want to support it because remember, a few weeks earlier, perhaps a few months earlier, the leftists had also taken over, uh, had attacked the American embassy. Mm -hmm. So Khomeini didn't know who these guys are. Once he sent his son to the compound and he talked to these guys, he realized these are all his followers. So by the second day of the hostage crisis, he said that the hostage crisis is Iran's second revolution. Perhaps even, he said, more important than its first revolution. So what happened? Uh, Ayatollah Khomeini and his supporters used the hostage crisis to eliminate their uh, opponents. They used the hostage crisis to pass a new constitution, which legitimized uh, the Belate Farih institution. And finally, because of the hostage crisis, anti-Americanism became the foundation of Iranian foreign policy. And I think, frankly, the attack on the American embassy, the taking over of the embassy for 444 long days was a huge strategic mistake by Iran. It has cost Iran a lot. It was an illegal act. And the late Mehdi Abazargan knew that from the very beginning. And when his demand for the immediate and unconditional release of the hostages was denied uh, by the radical, uh, so-called radical students, he was forced to resign. And that was the uh, beginning of the consolidation of power by the more radical elements of the Islamic revolution. I want to remind our audience or those who have missed that I also interviewed one of the hostages of that era, John Limbert, Ambassador Limbert, on this podcast a few episodes ago. And I encourage everyone to go back to and listen to some of his analysis and his memories of that era from inside the American embassy. So let's talk about today's situation in Iran. Fast forward four decades after the revolution, the Islamic Republic is dealing with a number of domestic crises over the past decade or so. The 2009 Green Movement was a very serious challenge to the Islamic Republic, probably the most serious one since the revolution. There have been massive anti-government protests in 2017, again in November 2019, um, and there was also very violent and repressive crackdown of the dissent and the protesters. And we hear some discussions that compare today's Iran and these challenges to the Islamic Republic to the pre-revolution era. I want to ask you 
if you think there are similarities between today and then what the, what are the similarities and what are the differences um, when it comes to these challenges to the Islamic Republic as you compare it to the pre-79 era and the challenges to the rule of Muhammad Reza Shah? Let me start with the similarities uh, between 1978-79 and 2012. In terms of similarities, I think I recall vividly, I was a young guy uh, in those days living in California and enjoying the beautiful beaches of uh, <laughs> Southern California. But I remember a lot of Iranians really uh, hoped that we would have a more open and a more democratic uh, system if uh, Shah's government is overthrown. There really was a, uh, for a desire to have a democratic system in Iran. I think if you look at uh, the conditions in Iran today, you would see the same uh, desire, this very strong desire for establishing a democratic system, a system that is based on transparency, accountability, and rule of law. Second similarity is that in 1979, we had a vibrant civil society. Of course, Iran was a much smaller country, about 25, 28 million versus 82, 83 million people. But we had a vibrant society in 1978, 79, mm -hmm. despite everything that the government had done. And uh, we have a very vibrant civil society today in Iran. There was pervasive alienation in Iran in 1979, not by the majority of the people, but by the intellectuals, by most of the intellectuals, both, again, of leftist of variation and of nationalists as well as Islamic. There was deep dissatisfaction with certain aspects of the Shah's uh, policies. And most of those issues related not to economic uh, discontent, but mostly to political discontent. Why is it that we uh, cannot participate in the political process. Why is it that there is only one political party, Hezbollah Why is it that other forces are suppressed? And of course, another similarity was that the government in 1979 and the government today uh, do not have much interest in opening up the political process to anybody who has a different perspective, political perspective. But the differences are huge, too. Let me begin with the most obvious one, and that is in 1979, Iran did not have any experience in revolution. Revolution was a rom romantic ideal for many of us, at least for my generation. You know, we grew up with uh, uh, the, the Castros of the world, with the Che Guevara's of the world, with the, uh, the peasant revolution in China. And uh, revolution meant something to a lot of people. Um, but right now, uh, in 2021, uh, uh, revolution, I think, has lost much of its appeal uh, because most people now know what revolution is. In those days, revolution to us was an ideal, an abstraction. Today, we had four decades of experience of revolution. My generation in 1979, we were bulldozers. We knew how to destroy. We didn't know how to build because we had no idea how difficult it is to build. Today's generation has become much more mature. 
because they have seen the experience of the past 40 years. They know it is very easy to dream big, but it is very difficult to achieve even small steps in what mm -hmm. you want to do. The second major difference is that in 1979, the region was in relative stability. It wasn't as stable as a lot of people think because we had a civil war going on in Lebanon, but nothing like the kind of situation we have in the Middle East today. Today, when the Iranians look at the neighborhood, they are not very encouraged to initiate radical change. Look at what has happened in Afghanistan almost 20 years after the Taliban were overthrown. Look at the chaos and the bloodshed that is taking place in Iraq. These are Iran's neighbors. Look at what has happened in Syria, where hundreds of thousands of innocent people have been killed in a uh, raging civil war. Look at the situation in Libya. So people look at all these, and as a result of this, they become much more cautious in participating in any kind of endeavor that seeks to fundamentally change the government, which is what a revolution is all about. And also, one other major difference is that Iran in 1979 had experienced an incredible, incredible, impressive rate of economic growth in terms of a standard of living, in terms of every social and political indicators you can think of. Iran was much more advanced than just about every neighbor it had. It really, as I said earlier in that talk, it, Iran had performed in an exemplary way. And I give Mohammad Azharfad a lot of credit for managing this. Whereas today, we are under the most severe sanctions and a combination of sanctions hand in hand with pervasive corruption and with mismanagement has created uh, a situation where most people are uh, going through harsh time, difficult times. Iranians do not have, they do not enjoy the kind of economic prosperity they enjoyed then. And finally, one difference is that the Shah's regime in 1979 was indecisive. It showed that it does not have the will and perhaps the public support to suppress its opponents. Whereas in Iran today, if anything we have witnessed in the past few years, is that we have a government that is willing, uh, without any compunction, to use uh, force against its opponents. Mm -hmm. And we have seen, um, as mentioned, especially in the November 2019 protests, massive anti-government protests across the country, that it really was met with an iron fist. We've seen images of security forces directly shooting at people and a high number of protesters who were killed on the streets or later on um, thousands arrested and handed very, very harsh sentences and some still in prison. So finally, I want to ask you about revolutions because I know you have written about revolutions, you teach about revolutions and not just the Iranian revolution, but um, other important revolutions in, in modern history. Do you think that revolutions can repeat themselves, and specifically if we can talk about the case of Iran, do you think that the 1979 revolution could be repeated in Iran? Revolutions don't happen uh, every other day. Uh, in fact, I think 
uh, if we look at revolution as fundamental change in the structure of the government, fundamental change in the constitution of the government, and a fundamental change that changes the relationship between those who rule and those who rule. In other words, uh, class relationships change as a result of a revolution. We've had uh, perhaps less than a handful of revolutions. The first one being the, the revolution in France, followed by the revolution in Russia in 1917, followed by the Chinese revolution in 1949, and then, of course, the Iranian revolution. Perhaps we can think of the event in Cuba as revolution. Not all radical changes are revolutions. That's what a lot of people do not understand about revolutions. All radical changes are not revolutions, but all revolutions entail radical change. Mm -hmm. Revolutions are really quick, they are usually violent, as I said, and they change not only the government, but the relationship between the governed and the elite. Now, do I think there is a possibility of repetition of the 1979 revolution? If by that you're talking about a similar revolution in terms of bringing another version of Islam? No, I don't. But if you mean, is there a possibility of revolution in Iran in the future? As I said, revolutions are unpredictable. At this time, now, for the immediate future, frankly, I just don't see the possibility of revolution. And I'm not talking about 10 years, 20 years from now. I'm talking about maximum one to four years, five years at the most. Uh, why do I say that? I say that because fundamentally, a revolution takes place when there is a uh, leadership, a figure who can unify the country, just because you have uh, discontent, it doesn't mean you're going to have revolution. That's, again, another misperception about revolutions. People think just because a society is unhappy with its government, uh, we're going to have revolution. There is a huge, huge distance between discontent, dissatisfaction, and revolution. Uh, you have to be able to transform people's discontent into political action and eventually into radical political action. This is very different, very difficult. You have to have leadership. You have to have decisive leadership. Remember, when Khomeini became the leader of the Islamic Revolution or the Iranian Revolution, everyone, even the most radical elements, at least accepted his leadership. Although most of them thought that when Khomeini returns to Iran, he's going to go back to boom and he is going to become a uh, traditional cleric. Uh, they completely misunderstood Khomeini's intention. But everybody accepted him as uh, an anti-Pahlavi leader who had fought against mm -hmm. the, uh, Muhammad Azza Pahlavi from 1963 all the way to 1979. There were organizations in Iran, formal as well as informal. By informal, I'm talking about the massive, massive organizations that the uh, the ulama or the clerics in Iran control, from the mosques to local Rozehuni, uh, all these, they were part of a massive network that was controlled by uh, Islamic elements. And most importantly, in those days, people were unified about one thing. They were not unified for how to build Iran, but they were unified in that the Shah Moscow. Mm -hmm. And Ayatollah Khomeini was able to take advantage of that. And therefore, and here comes the key element for making a revolution. To make a revolution, you need to create 
cross-cutting alliances among different social classes and social strata. In the Iranian revolution of 1979, not only there was unity among different organizations, such as the National Front, Jepay Meldi, leftist groups, and the Islamic group, but social classes were involved. You had massive participation of the working class without, for example, without the participation of oil workers in Abadan and in Khuzestan mm -hmm. that paralyzed the Shah's regime. I don't think the Shahs would have, uh, would have been overthrown so easily. But the workers were not the only one who participated in that movement. Uh, members of the Bazaar were involved. Intellectuals uh, joined the coalition. The middle class, uh, the modern middle class, the product of the Pahlavi's impressive modernization program were also part of this. So Khomeini was able to unify all these diverse groups and organizations under one banner and also when this anti-Shah coalition happened, as I explained at the very beginning of my talk, uh, mm -hmm. the Shah's regime lost the battle against the revolutionaries because it was indecisive and it was unable to uh, reach out to the moderate elements of the opposition when that moderate element of opposition was willing to compromise. And as a result of that, we had one of the uh, most popular revolutions of the modern time in 1979. Okay, and on that note, Mohsen, I want to thank you so much for joining the Iran podcast. Thank you for having me and keep up the great work. Thank you so much. That was Mohsen Milani, professor of politics and the founding executive director of the Center for Strategic and Diplomatic Studies at the University of South Florida. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran Podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, goodbye.